you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. And Ben, I was feeling um I was feeling a bit proud of Oxfordshire this week. Oh, for any specific reason? Well, because of that amazing fusion experiment that went on in an Oxfordshire lab. We, you oh, know, yeah. The brains of Oxfordshire may have solved the energy crisis, eventually. <laughs> eventually. It was pretty special, wasn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. And, and everybody's going, oh, they only created enough power to, like, power 60 kettles. Um but I heard someone talking about it on the news this morning who's part of the team and said, well, they weren't trying to generate a long-term electricity, but they said, you know, to they used like a small fraction of matter to, to power 60 kettles or the equivalent of 60 kettles. If you were doing it with coal, it would have been like multiple kilos of coal would have been needed. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing, I think. It is kind of astonishing and... It, it it's like it's a nice little piece of hope in amongst all the absolutely awful awful depressing terrible this is why we drink news yeah although there was a bit of me that went that whole story is almost the start to a sci-fi disaster movie oh stop <laughs> the fusion reactor's out of control we've created a portal it's turning into a black hole it's all over <laughs> Well, it is. Or, I suppose it's possible, but it, at least I we'd think, have a nice cup of tea, though. Before well, we I went. think in our lifetime, if people can, mainly politicians, but I suppose this is going to be led by private industry. If people can just line up the electric car charging infrastructure, this technology, and all the things that need to go into that, and there'll be multiple millions of them. We might just be, by the time by the time we retire, you'll be able to drive a car and the only waste products will be a bit of water. And that yeah, would be amazing. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Which you can then put into your kettle to make 60, uh, 60 cups of tea. Oh, delicious fusion water. It's fusion water, I love it. Anyway, I felt, even though <laughs> we had nothing to do with it, I did feel a sense of pride. <laughs> that's fine i think uh i think we can take because we live in the same county we can take something we've probably passed one of these people on the street and maybe we smiled at them we gave them a jaunty morning that encouraged them it could inadvertently the butterfly effect could have led from us to them maybe they were listening to this show while they were doing it yeah yeah definitely and uh, the other thing i wanted to say we did have some nice feedback on last week's episode which was great uh we had some one great one on twitter about someone saying they've never tried plum pudding and they're never going to in case the ghost of a kind of <laughs> 1800s Englishman with a weird name turns up. And I, thought, and I thought, yeah, fair enough. Plum pudding's not worth it for that, is it? Oh, it's not worth it for that. I mean, it's worth it for many other reasons. But it's like I would say, if you've never had plum pudding, if you ever want to know what the sensation of being starving hungry through to being so full you don't want to eat for a month in the case in the in in the space of 30 seconds then yeah. plum pudding is is the thing you need to try 
which is probably why that guy only had it three times. It wasn't like he didn't like it. It was just so full. It took him 10 years to kind of shift it. <laughs> Honestly, we we had, because uh, of all the COVID stuff, there was, there was right till the last minute, there was confusion about where we were going to have Christmas. And, um, you know, it's me and my partner and my sister and her her husband and kids and my mum and all of this and there's old people there's young kids you don't want to mix it up but as a consequence we said uh like oh just out just in case we better buy a christmas pudding in case nobody else does we'd normally make one but it was like uh we don't know how many people we're catering for and bought ones if you buy good ones they're pretty nice anyway we ended up with way more christmas puddings than you could imagine we bought one it spent some lodging time at my mum's and then last week she bought it back not remembering that we'd bought it over and said look I've got this spare Christmas pudding so in our kitchen we've got this spare Christmas pudding which does need to be eaten but I'm thinking I'm just going to risk it and leave it till next year I can't be eating a Christmas yeah. pudding yeah no not in the we're coming in spring you can't have a it would be wrong it is but but look this is a nice segue because Ooh. This is not Valentine's Day, the way they were recording it. But when you listen to this, it is Valentine's Day. So that yeah. is kind of like, it's almost like the next uh, like little piece of joy that the calendar gives you after Christmas and New Year. Yep. It's the first little, oh, this might be a thing. And in this part of the world, we got flowers coming up. Um, you, you know, in our garden, some of the bulbs are poking through. Yep. If um, if you know what snowdrops are, some of them are popping through. They're beautiful. They lovely. There's, it's the first hint of spring, but also Valentine's Day. It is an excuse for every single garage to be full of the cheapest, <laughs> crappiest flowers and chocolates. We should just mainstream chocolates, but they've wrapped them in gold paper, yeah. as if there's going to be some woman out there who's like, oh my goodness, these flowers and these chocolates are definitely not from a garage well done for putting all the thought into this yeah yeah yeah. um i don't know about you i mean i do know your wife and she's a even-tempered clever woman but i imagine if you came at her with garage flowers you probably would be sleeping in the car well to be honest we're, we're quite weird we don't we don't do valentine's day mm-hmm. we uh when we first started dating we did do valentine's day and we got so fed up of just having bad service in restaurants and oh god yeah you know what i mean and they go well we've got another get another sitting in so you're gonna have to hurry up and it was like actually let's just not bother with it because you know it's just a, a kind of money-making exercise and you get a really bad meal so we just kind of do something later in the year or whenever we fancy it really so we're not we're not practicing Valentiners. No, no, I'm I'm with you. And and Valentine's I think as well, it has it's it's um I think it's it's a bit awkward and not very nice for people who are single or haven't got a date. But when you're 17, 18, 19, 20, it has a bit of an extra significance. So yeah. it's a it's a it's a good excuse to ask out if you're a if you're a guy well it doesn't matter who you are if you if you're a guy ask out the girl or guy that you fancy it doesn't doesn't matter either way but it gives you a chance to 
sort of say, you know, oh, you know, would you come out for Valentine's meal? Yeah, you and almost got yourself into an Alan, Alan Partridge state there, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> the perils of doing this off the cuff. Yes, I did. But what where I was going was years and years and years ago, way before I met Rachel, we're probably talking 25 years ago now, um, I got set up on not necessarily a blind date, but I got set up on a date by a friend of mine and um, she set me up with her sister in the nicest possible way. And uh, I was very young. I was like, I don't know how old I was. Early 20s, certainly. And um, I thought, oh, I'll take her somewhere really special. No smirking. Don't mean that. (laughs) Um, And I took her to uh, the restaurant of a very famous chef. And like you said, it was Valentine's Day, so it was like, it's meat or vegetarian. It's it's a Boolean choice. Right. Like, okay, that's fine. And it wasn't even terribly expensive. I mean, it was expensive at the time, so it wasn't earning very much, but it wasn't massively expensive. But the food is great. Um, we'd all dressed up because it was one of those sorts of places. And um, the waiter came over and she said, do you know what, I don't, don't fancy either, either of these options could I get a cheese toasty? And, well, there wasn't another date. I was, I was so furious. Like, I've just paid about 90 quid for a cheese toasty. Yeah. And now the waiter's looking at me like, mate, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. But the where I was going was the other thing about Valentine's Day, specifically really when you're young, I think, is that notion of... And it's a bit weird when you break it down, but the here's a Valentine's Day card, but it's anonymous. Yeah, it's weird that, isn't it? And, you know, oh, from question mark, or who could it possibly be? I mean, it's a bit ridiculous, like, when you think about it, and quite a little bit spooky. But that's what led me on to, ooh, mysterious and spooky email stroke letter communications oh nice yeah yeah and so for valentine's day let's dig into those and the very first one that sprung to mind was chain letters because i don't know about you but when i was i suppose eight or nine we were warned off chain letters at school. Yeah, I remember that. It was a thing, wasn't it, for a while? It was. And it, it, you know, it was on the news and it got really, yeah, yeah. And there was all kinds of connotations to it. And I guess it, that that kind of, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it it almost feels like inspiring things like The Ring, the movie. You know, where you have to copy the VHS and pass it on. Those it almost spurned a genre of horror films as well, I think. That, yeah, that's right. That's right. But but we got told in a number of school assemblies, these are not things you should be doing. And this is like old-fashioned, like pen and paper stuff that you would receive. Snail mail. Snail mail. And I always was, like, I would have been thrilled if I'd got one. And I know that I would have, I would have just told my parents and they would have just, burnt it you know that's that's the right thing to do obviously but that hasn't always been the case so I thought oh yeah chain letters and and then I got thinking I wonder what the earliest chain letter is good thought uh 
and it comes from Denver in Colorado. That's where people think it originated in 1935. And it wow. was known as the Prosperity Club or Send a Dime Letter. <laughs> and apparently it swamped the Denver post office, hundreds of thousands of letters, and then it spilt into St. Louis and and other cities. Now, one of the reasons for this, and I'll tell you the contents of the letter, but we're right in the middle of the Great Depression. And so it's preying on that idea of um, you could be rich because that's what this was. It was a get rich letter. So when you got um, this this chain letter, so it was, it was either known as the prosperity or send a dime chain letter, depending on um, which version of it you got. They were the recipients were promised that if they participated in the chain, they would be the recipient of fifteen thousand six hundred and twenty-five dimes. So, like one and a half thousand dollars, basically. Right, and that was quite a lot of that's, that's money. Not bad, is it for a dime? Time. You can see it, can't you? All I've got to do is invest a dime, and I'll get fifteen. Yeah, thousand. That, that's right. So you were encouraged to um, tape a dime on the side of the letter and then send it on to five five more people. So it's like a typical pyramid scheme and that's kind of how yeah. most of these these things work. But because this took over as such a thing and it uh, it swamped the, uh, the the postal system, it became a word of mouth thing, but also newspaper outlets started picking up on it and then it spread around the world. So Newspapers in London were reporting on this chain letter, which was really confined to America at the time. It didn't. This one didn't really spread over. But there's also speculation that this particular letter spawned the term chain letter because. Right. So, if you think about it, there is no, uh, there's no xeroxing, there's no photocopying at this time. There's certainly no computers. So everything when you participate in a chain letter you have to copy out the text and then change change the recipients and that means that it is open to mistakes and there is there is speculation that the original letters in this chain letter they have the text charm rather than chain and it's it's thought that possibly this original letter started off as a charm letter okay. so like like a lucky charm if you that's right take part that's right that's right, right. and the, the text is actually quite short it it starts with um your address and um typically it will have the prosperity club at the top that's a thing and then it says we are sending you a membership to the prosperity club so be sure and send five letters as this chain has never been broken in god we trust and that's important i'll come back to that so and sorry just so i'm clear did you then send your five letters back to the prosperity club or did you were the prosperity club getting all the dimes basically or was it just almost not a prank but uh you 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 know what i mean it's not there there wasn't one person who was collecting all these dimes it was just no, a, no, a thing so, no, so after that, you have five names and addresses. And what you are supposed to do is when you receive this letter and you send on five more, uh, you take 
off the bottom name you and right. then you add your own so you send right five letters so, well sorry okay so you've got a list of six names i'm sorry so you yeah. take off the bottom one yeah. you add your own and then you send five more on to the right. other people so so the idea is that those other people will Thanks also be you. receiving a dime but then they will receive you add you to the list send it around and this right. is the, this is how the um the pyramid scheme yep. works yeah and um it i mean there's there's not a huge amount of um text that he just talks about that's the, the the mechanics of how you do it um it promises that you'll receive fifteen thousand six hundred and twenty five letters with all of those donations and then it says is this worth a dime of your money have the faith your friends have had this chain will never be broken and so yeah wow. it, it, you it, could see yeah. why that would catch on wouldn't it you kind of go you could see people going i'll risk it effectively five dimes right mm. oh absolutely yeah and then this this in god we trust thing really took off and there were other peculiar letters that were sort of picked up on this fad and some of them claiming that they'd originated by the pope there was one that said jesus had started it <laughs> and well he was always short of a dime wasn't he <laughs> <laughs> well you'd have thought he'd just magic yeah. one up but yeah, apparently no, I've, got, not. I've got yeah you could only do the loaves and fishes couldn't do the dimes yeah but that that religious element to it started Right. Uh, it was it was intended to imply a level of guilt, like oh, if this comes from the Pope, right. I can't I can't just break it, yeah. and that is what then turned into the chain letters that we're talking about that we were warned against in the eighties, where yeah. it stops being, oh, you know, Jesus came up with this, and it becomes if you don't do this, you will die, or you yeah. will have bad luck, or yeah. whatever. Or some, and, so, that, so that's where it started off as. It sounds like that first one is 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 a kind of hint of of religiousness to it, but more more kind of plain greed, really, or low level yeah. plain greed. Then it goes into the religious stuff, and then it almost turns into the kind of nastier and supernatural. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it probably started off. I can just imagine, you know, somebody thinking, "Wait, if I could just make all of these people send me a dime." I could be quite rich. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to go into this one specifically, but it did evolve and kept going with promises of, oh, and you'll also get a car and you'll also get a house or you'll find a wife and all of this stuff. But you think, like, okay, so this is only for gullible people. But that isn't true because I, th- I then went on to look and I thought, I wonder if in modern day this has ever spread into a more, you know, into a respectable part of society. And my goodness, yes, it has. Because hundreds of public officials and politicians across Wales were duped by a hoax chain letter that clogged up the postal system. Wow. So okay. so this this letter, I'll give you I'll give you the um the, the history of it. It's supposed to come from uh a seven-year-old boy called John Craggs who has terminal cancer and he's from Surrey and he's attempting to get into the Guinness Book of Records for receiving the highest number of compliment slips. The thing is, 
there's no such person as John Craggs, or at least in this case, there probably is a John Craggs, but he doesn't. What's, what's exist a compliment slip? What do they mean by that? Um, so you know, in the old days when um, uh, you perhaps uh, you, somebody sent you a CD to review, and they would put a slip in there saying, "All oh, right." With compliments, and they'd just write their name or something. Right, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Um, but this chain letter, it asks the people who receive it to copy it to 10 individuals of their choice, and then it concludes, for obvious reasons, this is an urgent request, and your assistance in continuing with the flow, which has yet not been broken, would be appreciated. So... <laughs> God, there's this, so many pressures there, aren't there? It's kind of child who's ill. There's that's a classic sales technique, isn't it? Of time limited, so you got to kind of do it. Not enough time to think about it. And yeah, wow. So wow. the the thing about this is, it did actually originate from a true story, but it got twisted. So the real story is in 1989, there is a boy called Craig Shergold. And he did get diagnosed with cancer and it was covered in the media and also the American Make-A-Wish Foundation. And they both published in the UK and the US, they publicised his desire to be part of the Guinness Book of Records. The thing is, he received full treatment for his cancer and recovered and he did get a million compliment slips, but he didn't do it with um, a chain letter. It was simply... The Make-A-Wish Foundation and newspapers got involved, like the Mirror got involved. And Right. I think it, I remember that. I remember that bit. I don't remember the compliment slips, but I remember the Guinness thing and I think seeing him on the news and stuff. And Yeah, because it's a really great story, isn't it? He, he pulled through and he got his wish as well. Brilliant. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But 15 years after this happened there are still letters being written and requests for compliment slips being sent. But it's that chain letter part of it that causes all the problems. And in that, and in that, in the, in the later one that came, the kind of scammy one, is anyone benefiting for that? Or it's just the thing of having this thing out there. There's nobody making any financial gain out of it. It's just a, a wheeze, a kind of sick wheeze. It, 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 well, uh, yeah, there's nobody making a financial game because the Royal Mail issued a statement saying that any letters addressed to, uh, um, you know, that are part of this chain letter, including any compliment slips, will be pulped. And they were. They really were pulped. Yeah. But this happened um, in the mid-2000s letters were sent from Powys County Council to MPs such as Lambert Opic, Mick Bates, Kirsty Williams, Karen Sinclair. And the council also sent letters to the diocesan directors of education uh, for Swansea and Brecon, two head teachers. Like it just, it went on and on and on. And it spread to local government associations uh, even the European Commission office in Cardiff sent letters to Euro MPs. <laughs> and it again, it brought the post office to its knees because what they thought they were doing was doing a good thing for a child with cancer, not picking up on the fact that 
no official request would ever be sent by a chain letter. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it's, I don't think it was done with anything other than naivety and goodness yeah. of heart, but it's amazing <laughs> that with within the last sort of 15 years, that again has managed to break a, a, a postal service. Well, and what's amazing is it shows how if something gets traction like that, you know what I mean? It's because then people go, well, you know, Lembic, Opic, and other MPs are, uh, have obviously checked it out. Everybody thinks everybody else has checked it out. And the bigger That's it right. gets, the more legitimate it gets. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I found it um, as- astonishing. But when you go, so, so chain letters, I think they've probably now become more of an email thing. So there's less. Um, I suppose there's less press about it because there were so many. I mean, all of us get thousands of spammy, hoaxy emails. We're just used to it and rarely do we pass them on. And and I think possibly if there are chain letters going around, um, we just won't hear about them because they're they're so well understood. Now, it's only when they get that hook in that it becomes dangerous. But before we move to um, sort of the, the the strangest case of letters, I just wanted to say because sometimes chain letters, you say, and this was this is this is of course true. Um, but I remember our teacher saying, "Look, they can't hurt you. Nothing, nothing bad will happen. You cut them up, you put them in the bin, you tell your parents, and you forget about them, and that's all. That's all good." And then whilst I was doing this research, I found out that somebody had gone to prison for manslaughter for sending messages. I thought, well, that's a that's an interesting case. I'd never heard about this before. And again, it it's in very, very recent times. So some of you will know this. We aren't a true crime podcast, and this kind of goes into the true crime, but also I think slightly the paranormal and we're not going to get into the gruesome gruesome details of it but it revolves around the suicide of a young man called conrad roy and his girlfriend michelle carter and so these two are they live in massachusetts they meet in 2012 they're both teenagers and roy has quite a difficult time of things his parents divorce he actually does try to commit suicide, sadly. And he's struggling with body image and anxiety problems. And he's examined by court officers because of um, the, the, uh, the, the impact on his mental health from his parents um, divorcing. He gets prescribed all the things that you would expect, Prozac. He gets given a court psychiatrist, um, and this is off the back of him trying to commit suicide. And then this girl gets herself into the picture and she befriends him. She starts dating him. And then for some mixed up reason, she tries to convince him to commit suicide and she guilts him into it. Um, I found there's... So the court released the full set of text messages that she sent him. And I'm not going to go through them because they are too disturbing, but they bizarrely got released a, 
um, about two years ago in Women's Health magazine. I'm not going to encourage you to go and read it. I don't think you need to, but if you want to find it, you can find it there. But she pushes and pushes him into just via one-line text messages into to taking his life. And it was those texts, the, the, um, the transcript of those text messages that ended up in court and she was sentenced to two years and 11 months in jail for manslaughter, for sending those messages. Right, for driving him into it. Wow. Okay. For driving him into it. But um, did they get to what her motivation was? Obviously, she she was no. she had her own problems by the sound of it. She, she had her own problems. And she, after his death, she reinvents herself as... Um, a fundraiser for suicide prevention. Right. But, but it's only when the police start digging into what led to his death. In, in the end, oh, really? wow. um, he, he killed himself in 2014, but she wasn't um, prosecuted until March 2015. Bizarrely, again, she waived her rights to having... Um, uh, a lawyer present and she defended herself and that probably led to the fact that she had such a light sentence she in fact only served 11 months and got mm-hmm. out but it's that i i thought it was really strange well not strange but interesting that um just a set of text messages can let can lend, drive that yeah can yeah. can drive that and land you in jail now yeah. I mean, it, it, when you look at those those text messages, there is no doubt they're evil. But you've got to think, like, when you say, yeah, what is her motivation? She's never come out with a motivation. Some people say, oh, you know, it was because she was messed up and she thought it was definitely the right thing for him. And other people cite, and I'm not, I I'm not going to cheapen it by sort of expanding on it, but other people say, well, you know, Maybe she was possessed. Maybe there was something right. <clears throat> weirder going on there. Yeah. But that's that I thought was um, was extraordinary. And that's what led me on to, and I sort of knew this case, and this is the first time that I'd really investigated it. And I, uh, I find it completely fascinating. And that is the case of the Watcher, of New Jersey. Have you ever come across this case? Uh, I, I know a little bit about it, but I, I don't know it in detail. So, I'll, yeah, go go for it. Okay. So it all starts June 2014, and there's a chap called Derek Broadus, and he's just finished painting this house that he's just bought. He's moved in with his wife. Well, sorry, I tell a lie. He's bought the house with his wife, but it needs some work. They haven't moved in yet. So it's him and his wife, Maria, and they've closed on this six-bedroom house in a place called 657 Boulevard. And they are doing some renovations. And they've been at it for three days. Because they've only just got the place, there isn't very much coming in in the mail, just a few bits of bills and you know just general paperwork that you need to do when you when you buy a property yeah and then he comes across this letter 
and it is addressed to dearest new neighbour at 657 Boulevard. Allow me to welcome you to the neighbourhood. Now, I think think that's creepy enough, but they they don't really think anything of it yet. Those those first couple of lines could very easily just be, you know, an invitation to drinks or something like that. Yep. And it's worth pointing out that the Broadusses had just bought six five seven after Derek had celebrated his fortieth birthday, and it's such a dream house. It's noted in the report I was looking at that the very first thing the kids did was count the number of fireplaces in the house and work working out which one Santa Claus would use because it was it was like this is a, such a step up yeah. from where they've come from and it, it's amazing. It is the start to every horror movie, isn't it? It is the much. start to they every horror movie. They involve a family, movie. yeah. <laughs> and this is where they look down on the letter and it continues. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now. And as it approaches its 110th birthday, I've been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. Now, that's that's not a strong start to moving into a new place. I'm just picturing what... It's weird. It was like almost the hairs on the back of my neck went up while you were reading it. Just imagine that. Oh, God. I mean, you just you get the curtains up as quickly as possible, you know. Well, the letter goes on and brings out some details. So, for example, it identifies their their minivan by by model and colour. It identifies the workers who are working on the house. And there's a line that says, I see um, already that you have flooded a 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it is supposed to be. Tusk, 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 bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. So they they then start putting their minds back and going, who could this be from? Like, obviously it's spooky, but at this stage, it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe there's a kooky neighbour. You, you know, at this point, you you don't, it's not necessarily sinister. It just might be, like, you know, there's, a, there's an old fella, you know, who's taking this on board. And they say that um, they think back about who they've spoken to in the neighbourhood. And they say, well, they went around and chatted with the neighbours on either side. And they took their their kids with them, um, who, were, who, by the way, are 5, 8 and 10 at this point. And they introduced them to various kids from the neighbourhood. That's the right thing to do, right? And they'd yeah, already yeah. began making yep. friends... Um, playing in the backyards of of some of the people that they'd met. But the letter writer has noted this. He says, or she says, they say, you have children, I have seen them. So far, I think that there are three I have counted. Are there more on the way? Do you need to fill the house with young blood? Better for me. Was your old house too small for your growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Oh, and that's the bit. Wow. Okay. I didn't realise it. Wow. Okay. 
that that's the bit where it starts to get oh. like okay this is more serious than than it first uh, first appears and so, i'm assuming you, it's all it's almost there's not it's really disturbing and worrying but it's i imagine it's probably not serious enough for like a police investigation you know it's one of those well we've logged it and we'll keep an eye on the house type scenarios isn't it well we'll we'll, we'll get there shortly um okay. Because the envelope, it's got no return address. Of course it hasn't. And it signs off by saying, who am I? There are hundreds of hun- hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I'm in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I'm in one. Look at any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter concluded with a suggestion that his, this message would not be the last. Welcome, my friends. Let the party begin. And it's signed, The Watcher. So he reads this. It's 10 o'clock at night. And he describes how he races around the house, turning off lights so nobody could see inside. And then he calls the police. And an officer comes to the house and he reads the letter. And... Uh, apparently a direct quote is he stares Derek straight in the face and says what the fuck is this and he asks Derek if he'd made enemies and he recommends moving construction equipment from the back porch in case the watcher tries to toss it through a window so he's thinking about this very much in terms of as you would I think as a police officer like how can I minimise risk to this person and he instantly thinks well, this is something that Derek's done. This is, you know, he's already caused upset in the neighbourhood. Derek goes back to his wife and kids. They're still at their old house. And that night, Derek and Maria write an email to John and Andrea Woods, and they are the couple who sold them 657 Boulevard to ask them if they have any idea who the watcher might be or why he or she had written... I asked the woods to bring me young blood and it looked like they listened. So the next day they get a reply from Andrea and she says, a few days before moving out, the woodses had also received a letter from the watcher. The note had been odd, she said, and made similar mentions of the watcher's family observing the house over time. But Andrea said that she and her husband had never received anything like it in the 23 years that they'd been in the house and thrown the letter away without much thought. That day, the Woodses went with Maria to the police station where Detective Leonard Lugo, Leonard Lugo, Leonard, Leonard, Leonard Lugo, told her not to tell anyone about the letters, including the new neighbours, most of which she'd never met, and all of whom were now suspects. Two weeks after the letter arrived, Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and check the mail. Once again, she recognises what is this telltale thick black lettering on a card shaped envelope and calls the police this letter says welcome again to your new home at 657 boulevard the workers have been busy and i have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings the dumpster is a nice touch have they found out what's in your walls yet in time they will 657 boulevard is anxious for you to move in it has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house 
Have you found all of the secrets it holds? Will the young blood play in the basement or are they too afraid to go there alone? I would be afraid if I were them. It's very far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me know who is in which bedroom. I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you moving through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Braddus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard and now it has brought you to me. So this is, this is really deeply disturbing. One of the initial clues as to who this could be is the fact that they spell the name wrong. They, 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 they miss out a letter and call them Braddus. And this initially leads to ex, uh, uh, sort of a, a potential that this person had just heard, overheard contractors saying the name and they right. didn't know how to spell it. But later on in the note, the watcher boasts of having like learned lots about the family in preceding weeks. He knows a lot of details about the children. Um, and he keeps going on and on about this new blood. And then there's a particularly chilling thing where he points out that one of the children had been seen using an easel on, uh, an enclosed part of the porch asking, is she the artist of the family? And it's at this point where, Derek and Maria they stop bringing the kids to the house because they just they have no idea what's going on and then several weeks later so they're carrying on with the work but they get a note saying where have you gone to 657 Boulevard is missing you and this is this is crazy like it it then starts on uh like they get invited to a barbecue where they're um uh, being welcomed by the street and of course they go to the barbecue and they take the children but they're paranoid about the children and they you say you wouldn't well, want to let them out of your sight would you well that's right and they start saying like people must have thought we we're crazy because D- D- Derek and I had agreed that we would never let them out of the sight but of course you know they're so young they don't know what's going yeah, on yeah, and yeah. they just want to they just want to play with their, their their mates and um Derek is like searching for clues as to who this could be and he he gets told whilst he's at the barbecue about a family called the Langfords who uh, lives in between them and their other neighbours and this family is made up as Peggy Langford, she's in her 90s, she's got several of her adult children, Um, they're in their 60s, they live with her, they're told that the family's a bit odd but harmless he describes one of the younger Langfords, Michael, who didn't work and had a beard like Ernest Hemingway as kind of a Boo Radley character. <laughs> and so Derek's thinking, well, that's the case solver, right? It's them. Mm. The Langford house right next door, it, they can easily see the easel on the porch. The family have been there since the 60s. 
And when the watcher's father, as the letters had said, had become observe, had, had begun observing 657 Boulevard, that would fit in with the timescale. Richard Langford, the family patriarch, he died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. Well, give or take, 12 years, maybe. Um, so they go straight back to the police officer, and they say, look, we think it's them. But the police officer says, I already know who those people are. And he confesses that he'd brought Michael Langford in for an interview without Derek or Maria knowing. Michael denies knowing anything about the letters, but the broadest is say that um, the police officer Lugo told them the narrative of what he said matched things in the letters. This isn't CIA Westfield, Lugo told the Broadduses. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. Um, but he says there's no hard evidence. And after a few weeks, the police chief tells the Braddises that if there isn't an admission, there's really nothing more that they can do. And Derek, as you can imagine, kind of loses the plot and says to the police, look, if I find out who's doing it, I'm going to be taking the law into my own hands here because... You know, there's nothing else I can do. Yeah. And then he becomes more and more obsessed. He sets up webcams. He spends nights. He's described crouching in the dark. His wife thinks he's crazy. He draws out maps with sight charts from what could be observed in his house from different houses. Um, even works out charts for lines of earshot as well um, so to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling the kids' names. And sort of managed to fit it down to only a few homes that fit the criteria he hires a private investigator who goes around the neighborhood trying to find of anything of note he even gets a former cia agent to help um looking into um to the case seeing if he can find anything out he actually finds out that um there are a couple of um child sex offenders living close by but he trapped he he traces them and watches their movement can't find anything um suspicious there and he just goes through again and again nothing 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 he ends up in a fit of like how i can get my family moved in here he he describes at one moment costing up buying trained alsatian dogs and paying ex-military people to patrol the garden during the day and as you can imagine maria is like that is not how i want to live that is not what how what our kids deserve but you can see why that paranoia would just take hold can't you yeah yeah do you know Mm. what i mean because it you know and then like you say if he's staying up all night not getting enough sleep it all compounds the whole thing right absolutely it's almost like being under siege isn't it it's completely like under siege and that's exactly how he how he feels it like to pray see the story so we can get to the end um the langfords uh try to tempt other people into sort of confessing they put out like a fake letter saying that they're going to demolish uh the house and turn it into two houses Hmm. that doesn't elicit any response they become more and more paranoid about what might be going on they even 
notice that Bill Woodward, uh, sorry, Bill Woodward, who is the house painter, he notices that there's a house just behind them and they've got a couple of um, lawn chairs that appear to be trained at the house. And once again, he calls the police. They come around. They say, like, there's literally no evidence whatsoever. He gets really desperate. Remember that this is now... They've paid for this house. It's cost them a fortune and they're renovating, but they're still living in their old house. And I imagine the longer it goes on, the police are probably losing interest a bit because there's been nothing... That's right. They're, you know, nobody's been hurt or kidnapped or whatever. They're probably just losing interest a bit, I would imagine. Well, by 2014, the investigation is described as, sta- as stalled. There's yeah. no digital trail. There's no fingerprints. There's no evidence of anybody coming up to the house. Nobody's been filmed. The letters are analysed closely for possible clues. But the police just say, look, it's the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. And despite the fact they know so much about the family, the police just go, look, if I were you, it's probably just time to ignore it. But Derek can't do that. In a sort of like, in desperation, he does end up getting a priest in to bless the house, which um, is kind of like, I think, a weird move, but he does it anyway. And, of course, it doesn't make any difference. Um, He gets more unhinged letters. Um, I'm not going to read them out here for for brevity, but honestly, they're mad. He just talks about how six or or he or she talks about how 657 is turning on me. It's coming after me. It used to be my friend. He keeps going on and on about the young blood. Um, Do they get more... um do they get more extreme, more deranged, or are they pretty much on the same level? Oh, they, well, they get more deranged in terms of, um, like, this personification of the house, like, yeah. oh, the house is coming to get me. And he just keeps mentioning it, and just it's this um, constant reference to the children as the young blood, which, you know, I think that's the thing that Derek and Maria become focused on, because, yeah. like, of course, of course you would. And it it starts destroying their relationship. In the end, they try to do, like, they sort of realise, well, we're not going to be able to, to live here. We need to do something about it. They, they file a legal complaint in 2015 um, against the Woodses, arguing that they should have disclosed the letter um, to them before they completed on the house but um and they cite this amazing case where there are some states where and we've spoken about this before um there's a particular case in new york where the homeowners win because the house is legally declared to be haunted and in you have to uh, say, don't you? You, you have, have to, to say, say in some states, uh, yeah. And they're trying to invoke that law, but that law doesn't inv- exist in the state they're in, so they right. lose. And so they end up, because their kids are like, why are we not moving in, mum and dad? We've had this house for ages. And they eventually end up just explaining to them that there's this problem with the house, and they do it the best that they can. And the kids are obviously upset. And they try to do something 
with the house. So they try and apply for planning permission to actually knock it down and build two properties. That might get them out of the financial hole. Right. But that's knocked back. They don't get planning permission for that. So they try and sell it and they put it up on the market for much less than it would be worth. But because they feel sensitive to the fact they've had these letters and they fear repercussions, every time anybody gets close to buying it and says they tell them and they show them the letters and every single time someone walks away. And so they end up renting it and that is what they do to this day. They rented the house out mm. and it it's noted in the reports I was looking at, the rent doesn't actually fully cover the mortgage or any of the associated taxes on the house. It just mitigates something of their loss. Strangely, the renters in the property haven't had any of those letters, wow. but they still own it. They that they you know they're still the legal guardians of that house they haven't heard from the watcher for a while the watcher has never been caught the the only sort of um weird denouement to the story is that there were a set of anonymous letters who were sent to the neighbors basically blaming them for what had happened and that was eventually traced back to Derek, who had just kind of lost the plot and sent similarly vindictive letters to people he suspected, which earned him a bit of a telling off, but nothing legal from the police. And he apologised and said, look, I'm sorry, just put put me into this position. Um, But in, in his letter, he says, you're all despised by the house, but the watcher won. So to this day, wow. nobody knows who know, who the watcher is. Yep. They never got their dream house. Their kids are now much older, even though the youngest, you know, they're still, you know, the youngest one will still be a child. Um, and it is random tenants living in there, all because of these letters. Wow. And, and they, but they could have been, like nobody knows what would have happened. Of course they don't. Yeah. But you... If they hadn't had kids, they speculate that they probably would have just moved in and, you know, slept with a gun under their bed or something. Yeah. Um, because, you know, at least if something had happened, they'd been able to identify the perpetrator. But they could not, could not risk the lives of their kids who were being threatened. Yeah. And I, I think mean, it was direct threats, really, wasn't it? Well, indirect yeah. threats at the kids, sorry, indirect. But there was no... Um, there was no doubt young blood and all that stuff and the children's names. It's, yeah, really vindictive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so that is the power of an anonymous letter. Yeah. And um, I, well, I wonder if they have that. I wonder, because you said their kids are older now. I wonder yeah. if they will ever live in that house and whether it will start up again. Well, it isn't. It isn't known that one of the um, uh, one of the reporters who was covering this case more recently, he describes um, doing an interview with Derek, and um, on Derek's phone he's got 
photographs of all the letters that so he's able to show them to the reporter um but as he shakes hands and thanks Derek for the for the interview and everything Derek his last words to the reporter are the watcher won and so I don't think I don't think that they will ever go back there because not only was it poisoned by the letters but Derek's actions in a way meant that they're probably not going to be massively welcomed right. back to the yeah. neighborhood yeah. yeah um and at some point I suspect if the letters don't continue, they will be able one time to be able to write off the price of the house. And like, I think if I'm right, the, the figures vary all over, but in total, including the, um, the renovations, they were in the hole for about 1.4 million. They were trying to sell it for 1 million. They didn't get that. They've sold it for, un- they've, sorry, they've rented it for under the market rent, which is just kind of helping them top up mm. and pay some of the debts off. At some point, I could see that you might just kind of go, do you know what? Let's put it up for like 700,000 yeah. because it's worth double. And, you you know, you might just get somebody who is not afraid of the watcher moving in. And of course, it's pretty likely that that person if they are the age they say they are, they're not going to be around much longer. Mm. And if it is just one sociopath, then the the problem might be solved. But it's so curious to think that there's this one person sending these nuts letters. Well, and also the fact that it it hadn't happened before. You know, that's the other thing that would make you more paranoid, that it, you know, the Woods who owned it before okay, they got a letter at the end, but it was related to the new family. So it does feel very personal to them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Oh, yeah, very much so. Your paranoia would just be, you know... Because you can see it from the police's point of view. The police would be be going, well, it could be somebody in the neighbourhood who's just taken a dislike to somebody new coming in, but it could also be someone who's got a grudge against Derek or the family from somewhere else, couldn't it? You know what I mean? There's all So you can see why it's tricky from a police point of view. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, what what a weird, what a weird story. Oh, the but, paranoia levels. I, yeah, I just the, even just putting yourself for a split second in their shoes. Must, oh, terrible. Well, one, one last quick one, because I wanted a truly paranormal letter that that is the makings of of humans yeah but um this is something that i uncovered um in in my quest my quest eventually led me here have you come across the cursed nuns letter no i like this one we love a curse and we love a nun so it's got everything (laughs) so and also i'll tell you what we also love are things i can't pronounce oh we got it wouldn't be an episode without a name we can't pronounce so i'm gonna get it all out of the way go on so it was penned by sister maria croc crocfissa della concioni 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 sister maria crocifessa della concioni I think. Crocifessa della... What was it, della... Concioni. Concioni. It's a great name. Um, I'm going to call her Maria. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And she was a (laughs) 31-year-old nun living at the convent of, wait for it, 
Palma di Monte Chiaro in Sicily. Montechiaro. It's, yes. make, it's making me work. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Give her a lot <laughs> shorter second name. Oh, boy. Why couldn't she just be Maria Brown? <laughs> anyway, she is found on October the 11th, 1676, on the floor of her cell, and her face is covered in ink, and she's holding a note written in an incomprehensible mix of symbols and letters. Mm. And... She says that the letter was written by the devil in an attempt to get her to turn away from God and towards evil. And uh, it, this is this is historical fact, right? This did happen. And the message itself, it's just 14 lines of jumbled, random letters, symbols, everything. And it had been uh, completely indecipherable, but it was kept by um the convent now this is where it becomes super interesting because this report comes from live science which is a very reputable source and there is uh so there's this person um who is (laughs) why did i not check the names first (laughs) anyway there's a scientist in italy and he decided that he would use um uh, some crypto, um, sorry, some deciphering tool that he'd found on the dark web that had apparently been developed by the CIA to go about deciphering this thing. Oh, yeah. And he gives a report to Live Science. Said He says, when you're working on historical decryption, you cannot ignore the psychological profile of the writer. We needed to know as much as possible about this nun. So he goes into describing like what he'd found out about her. So she'd gone into um, the nunnery at the age of 15 and she had been uh, quite adept at language studies. And so he had been studying the different alphabets that she might have known. And they used that when they were looking into deciphering the code using the algorithm and so apparently she would have known alphabets uh from uh greek latin runic and arabic and she would have also known graphisms which is kind of like you know symbols that you use um and she would have used those uh to as a kind of shorthand so kind of if you think about like um uh, I suppose how journalists write shorthand. Yep. Some of those are just symbols. Yeah. Yep. Apparently, yep. she would have known these uh, these symbols. Anyway, so they used this uh, this algorithm, and they didn't have any particular thinking that it would be right. They were doing it more of a test, but it turns out it was able to decipher it. And the letter, although it is a bit rambling, it talks about the Holy Trinity as dead weights, that God thinks that he can free mortals, the system is for nobody, and then goes on to describe how the River Styx is true. So the River Styx being uh, the thing from uh, Greek and Roman mythology which separates the netherworld from the world of the living. Um, And so it is is a very anti- catholic stroke christian piece of text basically saying 
that right, none of right. that is real, but the river Styx is, and uh, and and, it, and apparently it makes comprehensible sense. Um, the church says that she was struggling against innumerable evil spirits, and it was written under their um, uh, guidance, as it were. What as a way of casting it out or something? Uh, well, no, as a, as a way of um, taking her to the dark side, I guess. This is right. this is a this is a very um, uh, Anakin Starwalker kind of story right. storyline going on here. I tell you what, when they give you lines when you're in a convent, they really give you lines, don't oh, they? Oh boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is uh, this was deciphered in 2017, and you will wow. find it covered in all of your reputable news outlets, not just Life Science, but um, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express for those of you who enjoy those wow. outlets. But um, I guess she could have just been kicking back against the church because she's had enough, but needed to disguise it in some kind of way absolutely and it's it's unlikely that you know um she it's unlikely she didn't know what she was writing by the sounds of it um it reminded me of the um do you remember we did that story about the meowing nuns oh god i love the meowing nuns yes yeah so like one of them started it i think you know it, uh, in my interpretation of it was almost a kind of rebellion and then all the, the nuns started meowing and you know cackling like cats so you know yeah i guess if you're under that pressure some it almost sounds like a way of release you know uh, I, well although you know i like the shorthand idea I like the fact that the devil does shorthand is basically what we're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, he's it? a journalist, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that concludes Wow. everything that I have learnt in the last week about mysterious about letters. letters. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's really weird about that? It's, uh, it's slightly jotty, but not majorly. Um I've been thinking about an episode and, and I, this morning I was thinking about um, words and spells and the written word and spells and things like that, similar kind of theme. And I didn't know you were bringing this letter writing thing. So that that's a slight coincidence that I was thinking about that this morning. Well, one of the things that I do want to look at at some point is it's interesting you say that because... Uh, when you look at, uh, like, I don't know, like a um, an exorcism, and we sort of know from the films that um, saying um, the power of Christ compels you and things like that. Yeah. How is it that just saying some words can have any effect unless it is just affecting the psychology of the person? How How would and why would a demon be scared of some words that's what i don't really understand yeah yeah but yeah i guess and there's all those ties into witchcraft and then into prayer and paganism Mm. and and maybe it does kind of go back into the the early you know because people said that about the printing press didn't they how it was evil when it came out yeah they did yeah 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 so there's there's a there's a real history in the written word and 
words can be dangerous, obviously, as we found out. Certainly can cause paranoia in the terms of that house and the boulevard. And, yeah, and, paranoia, uh, death in some instances. Um, yeah. Yeah, just, um, yeah, be careful what you say. Yeah, be careful what you write. I mean, it is funny that I think that the internet as well, I know, I know it's making me sound like an old man saying it, but... You know, people, I think people don't really think when they're sending a text or writing on Twitter or Facebook or on the internet, you just kind of knock it out there, don't you? And it it does have effects, yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what. Oh, yes. What we could do is start the Quantum Mechanics podcast chain letter. Pass the podcast on to five people for us. Oh, that's a good idea. Pass the link to this episode on to five people for us. You won't get 15,000 dimes. Nothing bad's going to happen. Nothing's great's going to happen. No, actually, something great will happen is that you'll put a smile on me and Ben's face. And if you come into the Cross Keys pub and you happen to see me there, or Peter, and you say, I've passed it on, I swear I will buy you a pint of real ale... Not not anything from the top shelf. I'm not made of money, but I'll I'll buy you a pint, certainly. Yeah, definitely. So pass pass this episode on to five people. It'll be a good thing to do. We're probably going to leave everybody with... Um, it, well, it's a memory for those of us who grew up in the 80s in the UK. A memory of a reference to chain letters, which is decidedly not evil. Take one. Do it again, and you gotta change. That's how you feel.